coming into the world through the value structure of the right hemisphere, which says we are a collective whole and our number one job is to love one another. Welcome to the 314th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. And that, my friends, was Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. I'm so excited to have her as part of the show today to discuss her new book, Whole Brain Living. If you haven't seen her YouTube video, My Stroke of Insight, please go on over to YouTube and make sure you check it out. It's one of the most viewed YouTube um, TED Talk presentations um, that has ever been recorded. She's a phenomenal person. She'll tell her story. At 37, she had a massive hemorrhagic stroke that left her unable to speak, walk, or talk. And after eight years, she regained complete function back. At the time, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor was at Harvard, and she is a neuroanatomist, a a brain scientist. So she experienced everything that she had been studying from the inside out. And her first book, My Stroke of Insight, really goes through and details her experience. And, you know, if you're a neurology resident, a student or a medical student or just someone that who knows someone with a stroke, I, I, I highly suggest you read this book because it's insight into a, the perspective of a patient or a person who has had a stroke, uh, unlike any other perspective that I have ever read. Uh, I told her that it was practice changing for me, and it was. And um, she's an amazing person. She um, is going to enlighten us on how we can live better through using the four characters of our brain. You even get a sneak peek into my brain as she analyzed my four characters as she listened to previous podcasts and looked at my website. So it was a little scary for me for a neuroscientist to um, look into my brain while it was still into my head, but she was very kind about her assessment, and uh, we had a great, great conversation. So I am not going to delay my stammering any further. I want you to listen to this podcast and please enjoy, and and I'll leave links to her books and her website, Um, and I I hope you gain as much from this podcast as I did. Thanks for listening. It is my pleasure to welcome you, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, to the Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. I listened to your TED Talk with millions of other people and was blown away, uh, inspired. And, um, you know, I went to medical school. I did my neurology and microanatomy, but you took me one step deeper because I don't think anybody explains a stroke from a person's perspective. And... You know, when I heard you initially, well, I didn't hear you, but when in your book, when you describe the medical students coming into the room, I, I had to get, I gasp, you know, for, for thinking how going back into a room with a patient who have had a stroke and the neglect of a side and trying to communicate and trying, you know, and the menagerie of residents and interns going into the room and you know, what we miss, what perspective we miss by not understanding where the patient was coming from. Yes, yes, that's beautiful. Thank you. And yes, and I, you know, I I, I felt um, remorse and guilt and all those things, you know, when when listening to your story and it was an eye opener and I approached, you know, I've been practicing medicine since 1987, I guess. And so it's been a lot of years, but it changed the way I practice and way I, the way I viewed people. Um, my father passed away from Alzheimer's. So, uh, and he lived with me and I, I have some um, 
you know, uh, in dealing with him uh, and some of his memories and hallucination and coming and going, uh, again, it gave me more insight to possibly where, uh, where he was coming from. And then most recently, I've been listening um, to um, uh, Mr. Pollan's book about, you know, change your mind and hallucinogens and where some of those LSD mystic experiences may come from. So today I want to pick your brain <laughs> on mm -hmm. some of these things um, and how they relate to your newest book, Whole Brain Living, The Anatomy of Choice and the Four Characters. So again, uh, welcome. And we can maybe just do a quick recap of your story and then hit right into those four characters and how we can maybe do some examples. Perfect. Well, first of all, thank you. It's good to be with you. And for me to hear that um, considering through the eyes of my stroke of insight, uh, the shift that happened inside of you as a medical professional to consider the patient's perspective a little bit differently is purely music to my ears. Because, it, you know, it is, you know, we are, once you have experienced a stroke, depending on, of course, what the trauma is, where the trauma is inside of the brain, we may not have language, which means we cannot communicate with you, but that doesn't mean we're not whole and we're not here. It's more like, come find me, come try to relate to me in the language I do understand, which may be empathy and compassion and kindness, as opposed to just the intellectual left brain experience of, well, she has aphasia, so, you know, squeeze my hand, squeeze my hand, is she in there? And it's like, well, I don't know, I might not know what a hand is, and I don't know, might not know what squeeze is, so... I need I need people to communicate with me where I am, not where you are. So um, I always appreciate it when medical professionals come in and say, "Wow, that was insightful." Um, so so yes, yeah, so I was 37 teaching and performing research at Harvard Medical School, and then I woke up and had this major hemorrhage that wiped out the left half of my brain. And um, within four hours, I could not walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my life. And uh, by any standard, I was an infant in a woman's body. Uh, the greatest gift I believe I was given after um, uh, surgery happened um, three weeks after the major hemorrhage in order to remove a blood clot the size of a golf ball was my neurologist said to me, it will be at least two years before we know anything. And your job now is to go and recover your brain. And what that did was that gave me the freedom to not worry about if you don't get it in back in three months, six months or a year, you'll never get it back. So um, I think that that was probably the greatest blessing that I was given in order to set me up for recovery in a successful way, really recognizing we have no idea. Go, go, go show us what you can do. Yeah, and I think that that is, it's almost, you know, a lot of times people hear that, well, at six months, if you don't have it, then that's all you're going to get. And so, like you say, it's a, it's a big rush to get it, get back function and then perhaps give up. Um, you know, in your book, you talked about, you know, your mom was so attentive and such a teacher as far as taking you back to the most infantile processes and bringing you forward with you know, it was a great win for a piece of the puzzle to fit. Uh, it was a great win to learn a word. And at what point did you have the fresh, you know, did you have frustrations, you know, or, or were you still so right brain awe that um, you could, you could not be so frustrated? You know, I, I was very blessed that I was so grateful that I was still alive. I mean, I did not die that day. I was as detached as a, as a person can be and still be alive. And But I was still alive. And so because I still had life, I had an inside deep, deep, deep sense of gratitude and as long, I did get exasperated, I did get frustrated, I, but mostly I got tired. And I really needed people to set me up for success by letting me sleep. 
uh, I cannot say enough about the healing power of sleep. And my mother was figured out real quickly, well, she needed to let me sleep because otherwise I was a monster and, uh, and she didn't want a monster, you know, so she'd put me to bed. Um, and then she, she, but she then watched me and the level of, of, uh, the speed of recovery that I was gaining. And these were tiny little things, like you said, uh, uh, finding a piece of, of the puzzle was a win, you know, and, and we celebrated the win and, and being able to stand for any period of time at all in front of a sink and, and try to use both hands just to simply push water on dirty dishes. I mean, this was a win. And um, uh, we just we just really looked at what I could do and focused on the wins of today versus yesterday or three days ago or a week ago. And I couldn't remember those because I had no linearity of time, but she could. And so she, you know, she would share the wins with her friends on the telephone or with family on the telephone. And I would hear this over and over again about how well we're doing. And then I'd want to go back to sleep and she would <laughs> let me. Yeah. That's that. I mean, that, that's amazing. So again, the, the, you were blessed with someone that was patient and someone that saw things as the glass half full, as opposed to, Oh my goodness, this is, you know, we're doomed here. Right, absolutely. And we really focused on, on what, what I had, not what I did not have. And as I gained new abilities, we focused on what did I gain more of because of this, this stroke experience, as opposed to what had I lost. Uh, and so it really was a frame of mind, and it was a successful frame of mind for a successful recovery. I actually listened to you on a podcast and, and I've heard you obviously talk on the TED talk and you talk about the 92nd rule that, you know, we have a, a flood of neuro neurotransmitters come in and uh, we have emotional response, but 90 seconds and it's over. And at the office, we t sometimes use the example of, you know, you lost your wallet and the dread, and then you find your wallet and you turn it around. But I thought your 92nd, the best one was the other day when I heard you say a belly laugh. Uh-huh. That, you know, yeah. so a positive experience is, is as well a 92nd. You know, we always talk about a negative and you have the choice, but a positive right. one. Why is it easier to, to keep that positive emotion flowing? Well, I don't know if it is easier. I think it helps to understand the underlying circuitry. I think if, especially when it comes to the, the negative emotions, if I know that I'm feeling fear or anger or sadness or guilt or whatever, embarrassment, that from the moment I think the thought, it stimulates that emotional circuit it runs a physiological response that floods through me and flushes out of me less than 90 seconds. And the same then is true for any, essentially it's a reflex, uh, but as opposed to a neuron connecting to a motor neuron to kick a leg, then it's a, it's a thinking circuit stimulating an emotional circuit, stimulating a physiological circuit, and then it comes and it goes. And, um, but I, I think that people paying attention and realizing this isn't, our brain's not all about the negative emotions. There are also these fantastic positive emotions, but it is very difficult to hold a belly laugh for longer than 90 seconds. And that's one reason why, why you know, I am a fan of, of laughter yoga because, because you're forcing that circuit to run and run and run and run, and which essentially, you know, when it comes to neurons, the more you run any circuit, the stronger that circuit becomes in order to run itself on automatic. So you're training that laugh circuit so that you're finding more and more things funny throughout your day. And when you're running those positive emotions, you're not running the stress circuitry of that left hemisphere. And it's kind of like the pause. You have, you have the push, push, push of life, but then that right brain allows us to step step to the right, literally step to the right into the right hemisphere and experience the pause of just let the whole stress circuitry relax so it can reset itself at a lower level. 
That's that's very interesting. So let's go through the 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 four characters a little bit so that you know then we can we can go on from there. But um, and and then well, let's just just I'll let you describe the the characters to us um, because you know you you when I as I'm reading them, it's like, it's like oh I got some of those I get some of those I get some of those exactly. Uh, and you know how how do you go from from you know one to the other and um, exactly. So I'll let you start there, and then we'll, we can go. Okay. So you know we've been taught typically that the right brain is the emotional brain, and the left brain is the rational thinking brain. And the fact of the matter is, of course, we have emotional tissue evenly divided between the two hemispheres. And then from there, there is the refinement of the brain, neurological tissue, by the addition of the thinking tissue on top of the emotion. So we have emotion and thinking in each of our two hemispheres. And these are actually modules of cells, individual groups of cells that are very intra-connected inside of themselves. And what happened to me when I lost my left brain, I lost, the, the hemorrhage happened in my left hemisphere and I lost my language. I lost my sense of individuation as me, the ego, me, Joe Bolte-Taylor. She died that day. Her likes, her dislikes, they were all gone. My, my understanding and relationship to my past was gone. Any fears of the future, couldn't even conceive what that meant. Um, so I shifted into this consciousness of the right here, right now, present moment. So we have emotion in the right here, present moment. We have thinking that happens in the right here, present moment, which is beyond me, the individual. And I know that's so hard for people to understand. What is she talking about? But there is a small group of cells in the left parietal lobe that, uh, that is essentially projects a holographic image of me to me so I know where I begin and where I end. Otherwise, I'm simply atoms and molecules in, in a fluid form as an organic being in relationship to the atoms and molecules all around me. There's no separation except for that definition of self in the left brain. So I, I divide the two emotional and two, and two thinking brains into four very specific characters based upon their skill sets. And we know that these are skill sets that those cells result in. But when I was recovering my left brain, my character one in particular, my rational thinking brain that uh, uh, defined me, the individual. Uh, so I became an ego again. I then had a past. I had a future. I had language so I could communicate with the external world. I could build relationships with the external world through and communicate through language. Language is nothing other than abstract symbols that we place meaning on, whether it's letters of an alphabet or it's numbers of mathematics. So our left thinking character is character one, and that's the part of our brain that goes to work. That is, uh, it's organized, it loves creating order in the world, it likes to control people, places, and things. There's a group of cells that are a little clock that sits and ticks in that part of the brain, so it can manipulate and create order out of time. It got us both here together on time today because we have that part of our brain. So this is the boss, this is the part of part of our brain that likes to, at least inside of my brain, had been the boss when I had the stroke, I lost her. And then once she became recovered and regained enough of her abilities, she wanted to take over being the boss again inside of my head. And now there was the were these other characters in my right brain that said, mm, no, uh, we love you. We're glad you're back. But no, you can no longer be the back, be the boss. So this is, uh, you know, this is, it, it, this is our judge. This judges what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. It is precise, it is concise, it is good at learning. Uh, it, is, it can be uh, a dictator in that it likes the control. Do you recognize that part of yourself? Yes, very much so. <laughs> cardiologist, you're a cardiologist. I mean, yeah, tell me that girl. Now, she had to go to school and learn a whole bunch of character one skills. Did I lose you? Yeah, I just, yeah, just for a second, but I think okay. I'm back now. 
Okay, so that's all that character one. That's the part of me that went to school. She studied my, my neuroanatomy. She got me to Harvard, blah, blah, blah. She was climbing the ladder. That's character one. So that's left thinking. The left emotional cells is, again, the left brain is all about me, the individual, and I have linearity of time, and I have language, which it has semantics across time. So the left brain has a past emotion, and it has our fears of the future. So this is the part of us that any of our trauma or our threats from the past is organized there. And inside of the tissue of that insular cortex, that's the craving tissue. So any of our addictions and our relationship to our past trauma is going to be in that organized in that group of cells. You wiped out that group of cells. I was very blessed. That group of cells got wiped out and an entire 37 years of emotional drama and trauma got wiped out. And I was feeling pretty free in the present moment. So any resentments that we have or guilts that we feel or, or shame that we feel, these are emotions that happen from things that we have already done in the past. They're not in the right here, right now. So this part of ourselves can be aggressive. It can be aggressive to others. It can bully others. It can blame others, or it can blame ourselves and, and manifest like, like we're not worthy, we're not enough, we're not good enough, we are, we're not worthy of being loved. So do you recognize in that part of yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. Our little, our little painful self. This is our, our little self of pain from our past. The so chip, that's your chip on your shoulder is really. <laughs> that's the chip on your shoulder. That'd be a good name for that little character chip. Exactly. <laughs> I love that. So that's character two. So character one is left thinking. Character two is left emotion. Character three is the right emotion. So the right brain, it's right here, right now. There's no past, there's no future. All there is, is this enormous collage of the present moment experience. And I don't have that definition of individuality. I'm not the ego individual. It's not about me. Instead, I am just a part of everything that is. And as a result of that, I'm filtering through the we of humanity, the big picture of my brothers and sisters of humanity all around this beautiful planet and our relationship with the planet. And that little character three is emotional tissue, but it's more like the experiential. What does it feel like to be in the heat and to feel sweat come down my face? What does it feel like for you for those long hours of focused attention as you're working in surgery? You know, what, what does it feel like to be alive? What does it feel like? And it's adrenaline junkie. It likes to have a little thrill because it's right here right now. Let's have a thrill. And, and it wants to have a thrill with another pal because it's social. It's not just all about me. So then I call you up and I say, well, let's go have some fun. And you go, yeah, let's go have some fun. Or your character one comes online and says, Jill, no, honey, sorry, we're busy. You know, we're working a schedule here. And my little character three is going, well, when will you let your little character three come out and play with me? And you'll think for yourself and you'll look at your calendar and you'll say, okay, we can play on Saturday at two o'clock. How's that? <laughs> and it's like, okay, I'll see that. Right. So so the relationships between these different characters inside of our own head and then in relationship with everybody else, because you have four characters and I have four characters. So in our relationship with one another, there are eight of us. And so some of those mixes are going to work really well and some of them are going to be a clash. But character three is young. It's it's uh, playful. Uh, it's joyful, it's ebullient, it's explosive. Uh, when it gets scared, it gets really scared. And then there's character four. And character four is the thinking tissue of that right hemisphere. It is that neocortex. And this is a part of us that is is filled with an overall sense of gratitude that we exist at all. So on the morning of my hemorrhage, when I lost my left hemisphere and I lost all the energy in my body and I had no energy left to do anything, all I could do was be. And in that sense of life and being aware of, oh my gosh, 
I am alive and I have eyes and I could perceive different colors coming in as a big blend. And I had ears and I, although I couldn't differentiate any details, I was alive. I was like this amorphic, amazingly uh, filled with life creature. And I was good with the condition that I was in. I was in a complete vegetative condition and everybody else was freaking out. But I was alive and that's all that mattered to me. So I felt this, this incredible sense of peacefulness and this sense of euphoria because I didn't have any of that judgment or any of those negative emotions or anything that was taking me away from the right here, right now experience. So this character four, it is nurturing and it is loving and it is supportive because it perceives us as no separation, but we are one human family. And our number one job is to love one another. And I can, you know, I can attest to when you come into the world with that frame of mind, people look at you and wonder what is wrong with her. And it's that <laughs> hemisphere that comes in and says, yes, well, she's got a, a, a brain disorder. She has a brain disease or she's, she has brain damage or, you know, really negate the fact of, what did I gain? What did I gain in the experience of that right hemisphere as opposed to the negative hostile judgments and uh, of that left brain looking at me uh, as though I had lost something instead of really appreciating what I had gained? What do you think? I mean, I, I, I guess if I had to, um, it, it seems like that we've lost our right brains a good bit. Um, you know, I guess it's the opposite of being in our right mind. We've The left brain has taken over our, our you know, our, again, our judgments, our past, our, our drives um, in society. Um, it, it's, it, it, it does seem that the, we function mainly on, a, on the left side for the most part. And it's, and it's, you know, and appreciating a few people, perhaps, well, that's just an artsy type person, or that's just a musician. They, they can get away with it. But the rest of the world, um, you know, needs to function on the, you know, let's, let's get it done. Let's keep order. Let's, let's get things going. Um, yep. So, so I guess, um, how do you, how do you, how do you bring that back in? How, you know, how you, you know, that left, that left side, you know, when you're, when you're going down the road of everything's wrong, nothing's right. We're in a society today, a little bit that we, or, well, we're extremely judgmental, um, and we're extremely negative about our futures in some respect. We've had some hope taken away, perhaps. Um, you know, how, how do you let the right brain come out and say, let's play when everybody's saying, stay inside? You know, and, uh, Exactly. Uh, you know, I, I think it's about balance, but you're absolutely right that we are out of balance as a society. And, and the way I look at it, as far as the brain is concerned, is the value structure of the two halves of the brain are completely different. The right hemisphere values the collective whole. It values the we. It values that we use our time and our energy and our resources to help one another. And, and this is a big planet and we've got a lot of problems and it shouldn't just be the not for tiny little not-for-profit organizations that are out trying to help and heal the world, right? Then we have corporate mindset of wealth and value. And it's all about materialism. And it's all about how much money do I have in my bank account and how big is my house? And, and, and more and more and more, the, the materialistic value of saying my value is based on the size of my house instead of my value is based on how open is my heart and how loving am I as a human being? And the left brain's going, well, that's not gonna get you anywhere. You know, what's that good for? And, I, and, then, the, and then the right hemisphere is looking at that left hemisphere going, I'm so glad I don't have your stress level. And, and, and you you know, the values are just completely opposite. So, so for me, it really does boil down to whole brain living. How do we create the balance? And to me, I think we create the balance by 
coming into the world through the value structure of the right hemisphere, which says we are a collective whole and our number one job is to love one another. And we need to figure out how to do that. Now, that's not to say that uh, materialism is best. And I want my value structure, maybe then I invest in corporations that do the kinds of things that are good for all of us, as opposed to investing in corporations that that have a different value structure from me for me. And you know, there's so there's both available. Um, but I think it really boils down to our values. And, and I truly believe as a neuroanatomist and in looking at how the brain evolves itself and what we are as human beings is we are now working the kinks out between our new thinking tissue and the emotional tissue located below because that's the way it happens. But we're also working the kinks out between our two thinking brains as well as our two emotional brains. And to me, the power of the four characters is this is the power of choice. And it's like, based on the choices we make in our life, we will define a life that will unfold itself based on at each crossroad, what choice do I make? And, and so knowing what my choices are and which portion of my brain is picking which choice, what are my options? And those four characters are, are in what I call a brain huddle where they're actually all talking to one another and it kind of becomes everybody is aware of everybody else inside of our own head. Then it's like, well, I don't want my little unhappy character too to um, uh, say mean and nasty things to my boss because I'm feeling abused so that I get fired, blah, 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 blah. Well, that would have been a choice. Um, a more mature choice might have been to uh, have my character one just show that boss how good I am at what I do. Uh, and, uh, and, and the other parts of us, our right brain is saying, you know, this person is having a lot of pain. They're in their character too. They're projecting their character too onto us. It's not my pain, it's their pain. And I can love them in the presence of their pain and not take that personally. Their pain doesn't make me have more pain or make me lesser of a person in their presence if they're blaming all their pain on me. So I can hold the space. I have the power to hold the space. And then maybe their little character too will feel maybe a little held and not so so hostile and will work will walk away having a better experience of me. You never know, but every moment is is a decision. It's a choice that we're making. And when we know which of our four characters is making what choices and what decisions, then our lives become much more predictable and we can find more peace in our lives if, if that's actually what we want to create. Fabulous. So let me twist it a little bit. Um, you had in your book, um, you had um, you you had several chapters, and you'd have what each of the characters would their perception of it would be. And one of the chapters uh, was up my alley: diet and exercise. Yes. And um, you know, you talked about you know character one would take the bull by the horns and count calories and be regimented and character two would be you know guilt-ridden if you didn't follow through on the the regimen and all the reasons maybe why it's not going to work um and how long can i do this um i i had to i laughed out loud when character four was a vegan because i am <laughs> and holistic because I am, <laughs> but I'm also, I, I also don't fit into the box because I'm the character one that's like, okay, we just have to do it this way and it'll work. <laughs> all of them. See, that's the beauty is that you're all of them. However, if you also then look at, uh, I, I mean, a four, a character four is a completely non-effective human being. I mean, if all you're doing is you're blissed out in your, your love and, 
teeth and all that. What, what are you getting done? You know, I mean, there's no schedule. There's no, there's no planning. There's no organization. We have to have all of them. And so, so I thought it was very interesting when I read your bio and listened to some of your podcasts and how <laughs> you have gone from what I would, I would categorize as a very character one structure as a cardiologist and yet you have shifted into the domain of the right brain value structure of how do we actually help heal ourselves? Because you've, you've made this shift from the disease to the wellness. And the left brain is, is in our medical world has been focusing on the disease for over 150 years. And now we're, you know, really hooked up more into the wellness and how do we, how do we prevent what is preventative care? And how do we uh, pay attention to, to me, the most important three things in life is uh, sleep, movement, and what are you feeding yourself in any of the, any order you want. But those, that's it. There's where your magic can happen. How much are you sleeping? We know it resets everything. Every cell in the body gets a reset when we are sleeping. We need to get X amount of sleep. So sleep, what are we feeding ourselves? I mean, if if we, no question, we're not just, uh, as JJ Virgin would say, we're not just what we eat, we, we are what, what we eat ate. And so it's like, yeah, because, you know, if it was an animal, it was out in a pasture. Was it eating a bunch of pesticides? Is that now inside of me? But even even the, the GMOs and, and everything. So I'm right there with you. Um, and, uh, and, and then movement. I mean, there's a straight line, direct correlation between uh, amount of movement and amount of life. And when there's no movement, there's no life. Uh, so, so, you know, we, we, to me, those are the three big ones. And, and so, you know, however we get around to these things, uh, I'm glad you came around to these things too. Thank you. That uh, it was uh, like I said. That was you know. It's like one of those sitcoms when they bash vegans. You know, <laughs> and it's like, a, and, and you know, it's like, and and I do feel, and and I, you know, I have to tell you with the, um, maybe you probably already figured it out, but uh, when I decided to change my practice, because as a cardiologist, it is, and there's an adrenaline junkie part of being a cardiologist. You know, when somebody's heart stops or you need to do an emergency procedure, there is an adrenaline junkie, junkie drive uh, that you have some little bit or perception, a little bit of control over how things are going to go. Um, I learned a long time ago that you don't have near as much as you'd hope for, but you know, and, but as I, you know, became older and started to look, you know, if we just stop and slow down, the body can heal itself, um, you know, very much. It's just, like you say, given the opportunity, even if it's not sleep, even if you just take a breath for a second and, um, you know, just, just take a moment and, and redirect that, that the body can heal itself. But when I was changing the practice, I really, I struggled with, uh, you know, I had a, 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 person kind of helping me and directing me. And, and I would have these, she was more of, she was supposed to be my marketer, but she was more my psychiatrist at the time because I'd have these moments of, you know, I'm a cardiologist. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. You know, I now I teach nutrition classes. I use a spatula. I don't use needles. I use spatulas. You know, I use spices. What kind of doctor uses spices? Yeah. And, uh, you know, so <laughs> the book really, you know, it's like, yeah, it hits home. And now that I know you've... Uh, figured out, try to figure out my brain. Now I really feel broken, but <laughs> <laughs> the last, the other thing that I wanted to kind of touch about, uh, again, I was doing a little bit of reading on, um, you know, some uh, psychedelics and how they're used to treat addiction and depression and, you know, the perception that we've had and maybe change it. And, and even the divine mystic type experiences that people might have. Is that more of a shutting? And I know you talked about in the book, the monk and the in the in the nuns. And it wasn't that the right brain got jeeped up; it was the left brain got turned off. Is that typically what happens with psychedelics and things like that, or not really? I don't think so. I think with microdosing, uh, where you're taking psychedelics at a micro micro dose. And then, um, and some people are, are doing this the one time or the two times or the three times, depending on, on uh, why 
they're doing it. And then some people are using microdosing over long periods of time, but very small amounts. Um, uh, this was this in the beginning was really hard for me to wrap my mind around because I work so hard to get normal back that I really I really value what is normal. But then I was given this incredible gift of essentially having that trip uh, without having a drug get me there. But I had a trauma get me there, and then I got to sit in that for essentially eight years. Uh, a feeling like I was a fluid instead of a solid. And then you know, all of a sudden I, I'm real, I'm water skiing and I'm realizing I'm a solid. And if I fall, it's going to hurt because now I'm going to slap me against the water. And it was like, wow, you know, after eight years of, 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 of grabbing my, my way back. So, um, but I think what it's doing is it is, it's stimulating very specific uh, systems, generally the serotonin and dopamine systems, messing with the balancing and then allowing us but to have the, the psychedelic high that one would get with psilocybin or something like that, LSD even. Um, so, you know, the value of this is that people get to gain an insight into a different way of perceiving themselves. And, you know, the thing about being a biological creature is every ability we have is because we have cells that are performing that function. And that includes whether we're, uh, you know, we can, we, can, uh, we can have a psilocybin high in or an LSD hallucination because we have circuitry in our brain that does that, performs that action. And now we're taking a substance from the external world and bringing it into our body, ingesting it and telling that circuit to run itself. And um, a, a lot of caution needs to be taken, I believe, especially with anything that turns on the hallucinogenic circuit. Um, I have a brother diagnosed with schizophrenia. Uh, he's the reason why I grew up to study the brain at all. And um, a third of the cases of people with schizophrenia essentially their schizophrenia gets turned on from smoking marijuana. Okay, well, that was research back in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Well, we know that it's still true. If you tell, if you take a medication or a drug that is going to tell the hallucinogenic system inside of your brain to turn on, wow, now I'm hallucinating, now I'm high, wow. Well, if, if the brain doesn't get the memo that it needs to shut that circuit off, then that circuit can continue to run. And the more often a circuit runs, the stronger that circuit becomes, and then the more it begins to run on automatic for itself. So that's the danger and the hazard of messing around with those types of medications as drugs for microdosing. Um, but it, the value is that if I experience trauma and um, every time I'm in a storm and I hear thunder and I'm, I'm you know, uh, let's say I'm a veteran. And uh, so I feel I instantly go to, I'm, I'm in my foxhole and I'm being shot at and I got my gun and I'm gonna attack whatever's around me. Then that's a flashback circuit again. I mean, this is all brain cells in action again. So if we can use a medication or something like a microdosing of psilocybin or ecstasy in order to, to bring that circuit online and with therapy and counseling during the process with a trained professional help you recognize that no, you're not in the foxhole, you're running a circuitry inside of your brain. And when you feel these things, that was in your past and it's no longer in your present and it's not real here. It is part of a, uh, a, a post-traumatic stress induced uh, flashback. So, you know, everything in moderation, I have to say, being very careful with these kinds of things. Um, and, uh, you know, I just work too hard in, in my own brain to even really want to drink a beer. Um, and, and, you know, a beer sounds good. <laughs> but I don't really want to do that to my brain. I mean, I just like work so 
hard to get her back that it's like, um, I've, I, I just, I value its function of functioning normally and well uh, more. That part of my brain is doing that more than, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And, and I guess in last in helping people, you know, I mentioned my father had Alzheimer's and some of the things he had hallucinations, um, especially in the evening. Um, he also had, um, you know, the periods of lucidity that something is wrong. And then, you know, then he was at peace too, almost like you, he would go to the right side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and it was only when he recognized that his brain was failing him that he find frustration, it seemed. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it was, you know, a lot of people that care for Alzheimer's patients, they spend most of their time trying to bring them back into something's wrong and we have to fix it. You have to remember this. You have to remember this. Right. And um, instead of encouraging, you know, or just accepting where they are, um, and supporting and just caring for for where they are in time. Do you, uh, a neurologist explained to me somewhat that um, they, they, you know, they lose present memory usually first and past memories there. So it's it's like the character two is, is it because it's so developed that circuitry that, that there's more of it to hang on to? I think it's that, you know, once the once the alarm, alarm, alert, alert gets turned on, as soon as I'm moving into anxiety, I mean, I mean, imagine how many bits of data you have to record about just this moment to be able to have this moment happen. Enough of it feels familiar so that we can not experience anxiety, but instead it feels familiar, we feel safe, and then our hippocampus campi turn on, and then we can learn and memorize new information in the present moment. And I have to have that process happen in order to go from short-term knowledge into actually drilling that memory in as a long-term memory. So I can have all the memories from my long-term memory of the past in there somewhere. And I might hear a little da-da-da-da-da, and then that will stimulate a song that I knew when I was in my 20s. And now I want to dance, right? Because yes, that's in there. But boy, ask me, uh, you know, what I had for breakfast this morning and it's like it's like I don't know and when we look at Alzheimer's in particular depending on which type of dementia it is depends then on what's happening at the level of those cells and essentially what happens is that the neurons have little little neurofibrils in there that make these skeletons and the skeletons inside of a neuron will will multiply and multiply and multiply inside of that cell so much until it can't function anymore because it's a living thing and it's a world in itself, but things can't get around anymore. And so the cell will die. Well, you'll have little microglia come in and clean up the mess and and create the, you know, get rid of the organic, but the skeleton remains as a plaque. And so the plaque is actually not allowing cells over there to communicate with cells over there who used to communicate with one another through me. And now there's essentially a barrier so that they're having these little isolated pockets of neuronal communication. And what does it take in order to hook right in and re-stimulate one of those little pockets so that a memory or a collection of memories can be brought back into consciousness? You know, dementia is an amazing, an amazing thing. And, and you know, the best thing I can say about, uh, about that, did you hear about the, uh, did you hear about, uh, sounds like a joke, did you hear about um, their, uh, uh, their, The microglia function at a level of, um, gosh, what is it, like 40, 40, 40, uh, I'll I'll send you a little link. Uh, what What some researchers at MIT realized was that the microglia, who are gonna go in and clean up everything inside of a normal brain, um, they were acting like couch potatoes. 
and that these, these microglia function at a certain wavelength and that you could either shine that light as a light, that wavelength in through the eyes or put out sound at that wavelength and it would actually increase the activity of the microglia in order to clean up the mess. Uh, it's fascinating, uh, you know, what, 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 we're, what we're learning and how to... It, there's so much we don't understand. And the brain is such a big, diverse place that different dementias are caused or are the byproduct, shall I say, of different circumstances influencing those, those neurons and how they communicate with one another. Yeah, it's, uh, no, no easy answers for sure. Well, you know, I really, really enjoyed your first book. Uh, like I said, A Stroke of Insight. I think, I think it should be required reading for every medical student. Um, uh, really, I, I just don't think you should be able to complete a neurology rotation having not read that book uh, because it, it, it does change the practice. It should change the practice of medicine. I think as a medical community, again, speaking as an older physician, but you know, we don't spend enough time with people connecting with them um, on, a, on a very basic level. And I, I think that's um, it's, as much of a loss for the physician it is, as it is the patient, actually. Um, the best part of my career has been my relationships with, with patients and anything to make that better is, is welcomed. So thank you very much for, for writing that book. And, um, you know, I, I enjoyed this book as, as much. And uh, I'm just thrilled to have had you on the podcast. I'm honored to have met you. And, uh, uh, you know, if you get back to little, down to Little Gasparilla, look me up. I absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, just please, I'm, I am grateful for your own shift uh, into whole brain living. And um, I, it's an honor. So thank you very much. All right. Have a nice evening and stay dry. <laughs> thank you. We made it through the storm. Yes, yeah, still. Okay. Take care. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. I certainly learned a lot and appreciate Dr. Joe Boltes Taylor's time. Again, I'll leave um, show notes to where to find her books and her podcast. She's on Instagram. She's on Facebook. If you have any questions, please feel free to email me at jamie at drdelaney.com. You can check out our website, drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y, and uh, find out how you might be um, interested in becoming a member of our practice. I also am going to take the opportunity to make a shout out to Glenn Wenzel. Glenn is a member of our practice who is going to go out on his own because he uh, feels that he's ready to take on this uh, plant-based challenge um, on his own accord for a while. And he told me that he wanted to come back when he's 50 and get a shout out on the podcast. But I'm going to tell you, Glenn, I'm going to give you a shout out now because I know that you're going to do wonderful on your plant-based diet and you're going to do wonderful with your exercise. So best of health to you and your wife. And we'll still check in when you're 50. All right, everybody else, thank you for listening and I'll see you next week.